Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Michael Inslicht. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, excited to uh, to talk today. Now, uh, Mickey, you told me you have a head start on me already. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, as our avid listeners, our soon-to-be avid listeners know, we uh, we drink beer. That's the thing. Uh, it's We're recording Sunday evening. Uh, Sundays for me are... Uh, well, I usually make some dinner. I made some nice, tasty ribs. And as I was making it, I had some uh, some wine. So I'm already uh, two in. Uh, this will be number three, uh, which I think it will uh, improve my uh, something. How can, how can it not? <laughs> Off to a great start already. Yes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, today we're drinking um, what to me is like the Toronto summer beer. It's a side launch wheat, which is a side launch is an Ontario uh company from, I guess they're based in Collingwood, 2016 Canadian Brewery of the Year, evidently. Um, and it's a very nice wheat beer. Yeah, wheat beers. Uh, yeah, that for me, that's uh, exclusively for summer. Okay. So um, today we're going to be talking about, uh, well, let's say, Mickey, if you and I had a scientific disagreement and I were to call you an asshole, yes. then what would you do? <laughs> I'd probably claim an asshole back. <laughs> yeah. um, or I might complain about tone. I might, uh, I might say, "How dare you!" Those, um, those would be your options. Yes, essentially. Or I could uh, listen to what you're actually saying, ignore uh, the fact that you called me. Asshole. Well, I probably wouldn't ignore it. I call you an asshole back, but probably uh, try to, to to understand the critique that you're, you're levying and you know move forward from there. Right. So today we're going to be talking about uh, whether psychology has a tone problem. Um, what a tone problem would look like uh, if we did have one, um, whether that's something that we should worry about, and uh, yeah, whether something, whether there's anything that we need to change in what we're doing or how we're interacting with each other, either on social media or elsewhere, um, to to address any tone problems that we might have. So, just to give you a little bit of the. Uh, background here. Mickey, do you want to set this up? Like, what is the context of this discussion in social psych right now? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it's important that we set up a little bit uh, for those who haven't been uh, on Twitter, you know, nonstop the past uh, seven years. Uh, so it's not me. I've been on Twitter a lot. Um, but essentially, uh, I guess a common starting date is, is 2011. Um, the date when the shit hit the fan in, 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 in psychology and in social psychology specifically, and ushered in what many people call um, the replication crisis. Uh, we might have an episode of whether that's an app title or not. Um, but nonetheless, it's you know an issue where it tur turns out that a lot of um, a lot of people claiming that uh, are we've we've gone sideways. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the evidence that we've accrued over the decades is are essentially false positives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first thing is just how much of a shift there was in terms of just directly criticizing other people's work, which, you know, when I uh, started grad school, th that was pre-replication crisis, that was pre-really internet discussion um, of research. And I remember when there was disagreement, it was like very genteel, you know, you might go back and forth in journal articles and replies or whatever, or you might have uh, dueling symposia at a conference, but it was it it was a very very kind of like velvet glove mm -hmm. atmosphere pre social media or at least pre scientists getting on social media on mass. You know these sorts of things weren't really possible in anything even resembling real time, right? I mean we're talking about you know things getting published in. Uh, articles, and then two years later, there's a rebuttal. Or maybe at best, there'd be like, you know, a newsletter that comes out, you know, a few times a year, and there might be some back and forth there. And I think the the speed with which we communicate now um, lends itself to, well, you know, emotions running high, people maybe not choosing their words as carefully as they might otherwise. And also, I think, with these, you know, quote-unquote curated uh, venues, you had editors saying, hey, you can't say that. You, you, you can't, you know, imply, impugn someone's character or someone's motivation. And so those kinds of things, even though the emotions might have been high, um, they would have been kind of edited out of the record. Um, so it had maybe the appearance of velvet gloves, but I suspect there were the same kind of simmering feelings were going on. 
Um, you know, famously, there was a famous debate in the early 80s um, about emotion and the nature of emotion um, between um, Lazarus and, 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 and Zions. And, and, you know, apparently these two really didn't get along and they had really opposing opinions. But this, you know, debate, you know, you know, stretched out over many, many years. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you don't have that same kind of heat. Right. And if you privately really disliked each other, you wouldn't see that playing out publicly in the same way. No, you wouldn't. Although I think you get glimmers of the nastiness in peer review, right? So in peer review, uh, where people often uh, are reviewing things anonymously, um, sometimes you'd see nastiness. Sometimes you'd see like people making claims about incompetence. Maybe not calling them not incompetent, but you know, th th there could be some 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 nastiness going on there. Um, but you could you're hiding on you know behind an uh, you know this kind of anonymity essentially. There's a bunch of things that that shifted at once, right? So like replication crisis, all of a sudden we were all much more skeptical, or at least a lot of us were a lot more skeptical. Uh, technology such that we could air that skepticism um, in public, and then also I think a bit it was that the field really expanded, like went through a lot of growth. If you just look at like how much bigger SPSP the conference is, from the first one I went to to the most recent one, uh, I mean it's I don't know the exact numbers, but it's enormous now, right? Yeah, and so over, over three thousand, I believe. Uh, yeah, like well over, mm -hmm. right? So all of those things combined means that like the feeling of the field actually shifted pretty quickly in a way that I imagine a lot of people like found really disorienting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, lots of change really, really quickly. Um, and, and also, I think um, part of it as well is you have, um, I don't want to use the word outsiders because that's, you know, too, too groupy. Um, but you'd have people who would have opinions on social psychology who were not social psychologists themselves. Um, and maybe they felt a bit freer to kind of uh, to criticize. Uh, um, so you and, 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 you know, in social media, you have all different kinds of people, not even, you know, psychologists uh, uh, of all different stripes, but also people out of, outside of psychology kind of giving opinions and criticizing, um, you know, uh, psychology work. Maybe we should talk about some actual cases just to make this concrete of where people have claimed um, that they were abused or bullied or treated badly in a way that, that went beyond like normal scientific criticism. Well, I mean, the most famous one, a lot of press coverage, um, I think very positive press coverage, is the case of Amy Cuddy, who is world famous now. Um, she, I believe, has the second most popular TED Talk of all time, maybe first now, I'm, I'm not sure, um, where she uh, popularized uh, power poses. Um, um, but essentially, you know, the, the stories there is that um, she published with, it, with some co-authors um, a very influential paper on this idea of power posing. The idea there is that uh, when you uh, pose in expansive postures, so um, think, you know, the Wonder Woman pose or, you know, arms akimbo even, um, you, uh, you feel more powerful. And not just that you feel more powerful, you also um, have hormonal responses um, that correlate with power. Uh, and this got lots of, you know, positive press coverage. Uh, again, this, you know, famous TED Talk. Um, and she became really a sensation uh, very, very quickly. Uh, very, very famous. Um, and, but then, you know, a number of years ago, she was uh, criticized. The, the, the power posing work itself was criticized as being unreliable. So there was a, uh, I think, a very well done uh, set of replications done by, I believe, Eva Rainhill and, and colleagues, um, where they could not replicate the basic effect. Um, and uh, then there was a response saying, oh, yeah, okay, maybe this one you know, set of studies did replicate, but hey, we meta-analyzed all the data, and look, we've got a very powerful, robust effect. So, you know, any one study here or there, who cares? Um, but meta-analytically, we've got something powerful. And then reply to that is like, well, hold on, you know, meta-analyses are uh, not so great. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have garbage studies in a meta-analysis, you know, the meta-analysis can produce garbage results. So what if we do some bias correction of these meta-analyses and the same people who wrote the, the, the false positive psychology paper, um, they wrote a paper saying, hey, look, when we, you know, kind of 
use these bias correction methods. They use one called P-curve, like the effect goes away. Um, and then, you know, kind of had a back and forth. Uh, and uh, and from Amy, from her experience, she, uh, you know, I think there was a lot written about her. And at some point it feels like a pylon. And, and, and she, I mean, she's felt bullied. She's felt really bad about it. Um, she said that she received death threats. Um, now, I don't know if the death threats are related to... Uh, to this replication stuff, um, or if it's you know, uh, or th- you know, unrelated. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, who wants to receive a death threat? Um, who wants to be named as a bad scientist? You know, 100 to 300 times over the course of a few years. I mean, it's got to feel pretty awful. Um, so, I mean, she's I would say the most salient, most famous example of, of you know, uh, claims of bullying, claims of lack of civility, claims of, of uh, bad tone and the online conversation. So I'm going to argue something maybe a little more extreme than I actually believe, but don't you think it's the case that if you become like a public figure, and I think it's inarguable that with her profile, that's what she was. I mean, second most viewed Ted talk of all time. You're just going to get criticized by a lot of people and they're not all going to be nice about it. Right. So anonymous like blog commenters might say that you're, uh, you know, incompetent or that you're a pseudoscientist or that you do junk science. And that just goes with the territory, like it or not, of being well-known, right? So complaining about that, well, I'm sympathetic to the idea that nobody likes to be the target of that. Mm -hmm. Aren't you just complaining? It's like complaining that it rains and you get wet. Right. It's just part of the deal of being famous for yeah, anybody as much on. as, yeah, for everybody else. Like, okay, you know, you don't want that. Don't be famous. Right. Is that unfair? I guess in a better world, uh, there would be less of that. I, you know, uh, I'd prefer, I'd prefer for people who want to criticize Amy's science to criticize Amy's science. And there's no need to add the, you know, the insults, no need to add the, the ad hominems. Um, in my opinion. Now, I, I don't think, you know, I'm a realist. I mean, you can't avoid this. It's, it's going to happen, period. Um, but yeah, I guess the, I'd rather there be less of that. So let's uh, let's come back to that because I, I don't want to get too far ahead of where we were, which is talking about like, what are the salient examples? Right. Um, and I guess the next salient example that comes to mind for me would be, would be Brian Wansink. Right. Who is also a very high profile scientist. Um, who did a lot of research, just a ton of papers coming out of his lab. And it seems that many of them have actually very serious problems. So I think it isn't unfair to say that many of them are just absolutely riddled with errors to the point where you're like, how does that happen, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> is, is that too much? No, that's not too much. That is even that's a kind. Fair, I mean, yeah. it, it, it is... It is atrocious. I mean, the the number of errors that have been spotted quickly and easily without much work, um, you know, uh, like some examples of errors are, you know, running studies saying it's on, you know, a, a certain age group. Oh, no, the, the kids were actually five years younger. Or, you know, it, these are a lot of these are food studies and like the units of measurement are impossible. Um, I mean, it's just like what is going on in there? What is actually in, in, in those studies? Uh, it's not clear. I mean, I look at the, all those mistakes, and, I, and I'll admit that I haven't kind of gone deep into into analyzing Brian Wansink's, you know, and all the criticisms. But on the surface, at least, it looks like wow. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I can trust work that comes out of that lab. Um, and I'm someone who'd rather, you know, you know, trust, you know, examine it paper by paper and, and make judgments that way. But here's a case where, you know, there's so many errors um, that you just got to think that. There's something deeply, deeply wrong here. Yeah, so this has been picked up by, you know, a number of independent researchers who've been looking into this, like, basically on their own time and for really a very little credit, right? It's it's not like you even get a paper out of this, right? You're just kind of doing this almost as a public service or, or because, you, you know, you get interested um, and you end up pursuing it. But then also some people have written some not very nice things about him, right? So he's been compared to Donald Trump, for example, right. um, in a blog post. So that, you know, obviously would get under your skin if you're the person being compared to Donald Trump. And that's, that's again, being, it's been held up as an example of like, we're not treating people 
the way that we should be treating them. Now, I, I think to me, like he raises an interesting question of like, when it's the sustained pattern across multiple papers of like something really being wrong, like at what point do we drop the whole civility thing? Right. I'm not sure. Is he claimed that he's been bullied? I mean, is are, are there claims out there that he is in fact feels persecuted or, you know, uh, yeah. So there, there, there is a recent PNAS paper that we'll talk about that uses him. So they don't, they don't use his name in the text, but from the citations and so on, it's clear that that's who's being talked about, uses him as an example of um, being the victim of behavior that should be quote unquote censured. Now it's not clear from the paper exactly what that means. I, I don't, I, I'm not sure like how seriously to take that word. Like if you literally look up the dictionary definition of censure, that's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not what the authors meant. But so let's say it's fair to say third parties have used him as an example of criticism going too far. You know what? I, I know we didn't mention this as we were planning, planning the show. The first time I heard a claim of bullying was, uh, was far before Amy. Uh, and that was with uh, Simone Schnell. Yeah who had done a, a number, uh, you know, conducted a lot of work uh, examining uh, moral disgust and is it cleansing? Or? Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and I guess there was uh, a replication attempt of one of her papers and uh, the replication failed. And I mean, she was really upset about it. I mean, she was upset about the process in which um, a paper was published. Um, this replication paper was published. And I mean, she just took the failure up very, very personally and yeah, claimed that she was bullied. And I'll admit at the time, um, I was sympathetic to her. I was sympathetic to this notion that she's being treated poorly. But now I, th I think my own attitudes have changed quite a bit, um, you know, since the replication crisis first started. And now I look at that and it's like, what, what is there to complain about? I mean, she... I mean, it sucks. I mean, yeah, she has a paper. People try to replicate it, and it didn't replicate. Um, I mean, that sucks. Uh, I've I've had I've actually tried to replicate my own papers and, and not replicate it, and that doesn't feel good. I feel bad about the original you know paper having gone out. Um, but yeah, charges of bullying uh, seem a bit odd in that case, and, uh, and now in hindsight. Yeah. So I remember that, and she didn't like the way that she was written about on blogs and described on social media and so on, and felt that the tone was bad and that they were sort of gloating about this failure to replicate. And and also, yeah, had process complaints that she wasn't being uh, treated fairly in the, in the process of the publishing of the replication. I wonder whether, as are kind of field norms for like what constitutes good evidence shift, whether that's going to seem like kind of crazy in retrospect because like can you imagine you're like fighting tooth and nail for your like 20 per condition between subjects experiment effect it, it's like these days you're like god no i mean i wouldn't expect that to to replicate like why why would you like why why would you fight to the death over this like thing where you at best you gave sort of anecdotal evidence not, not like this is unique to her by any means it's just like those were the standards of the field but like if anybody comes up with something that like you know actually um digression which we may cut but like i did have something in the latest many labs um which is i guess currently under review um and maybe i shouldn't talk about the results but anyway they like very barely replicated um, something that I reported in like a 2009 paper. So it like did technically replicate, but it's just on the right side of significant and effect is tiny. It's like, yeah, you know what? Like that was like an in interaction between, between subjects manipulation and an individual difference variable with a total end of like 40. Like, God, I, I mean, I feel lucky that it like, happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But like, I wouldn't put any money on that. I wouldn't bet a hundred bucks on that finding. I mean, those were the standards at the time, but they were like bad standards right. and like, Right. Like that's not good evidence. And right. so like taking it so personally to me seems in retrospect kind of bizarre. It's like, well, well, why? Well, here's a question for you. So, so, you know, Simone Schnall, the replication of Simone Schnall's paper appeared in a journal called Social Psychology. And it featured I think about a dozen, I believe, or so uh, replications. Can you name a single other? No. Replication? No, it's, not, it's a, yeah, yeah. It's pure Streisand effect, right? Like right. You, you complain really loudly. Now everybody's paying attention. Now there's like drama. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so that that backfired uh, royally. But 
I think the, you know, as we're discussing, you know, as our, you know, the, the norms change of what is good evidence and kind of in hindsight, it looks crazy that, you know, uh, one would complain about, about this. Um, it, you know, reminds me that it, we're, you know, we're really bad at um, determining when criticism is legitimate and when criticism is not legitimate, when it's ad hominem, because it's, you know, we work so hard on our papers. We work, you know, we, we're invested in our ideas. We, some, sometimes we're in love with our ideas. Um, and when someone criticizes them, um, we, we can't help but, you know, see it as a personal attack. And also we can't help but not only see it as a personal attack, but also maybe see the personal attack as unfair. And also as maybe um, uh, constituting examples of bad faith or constituting examples of, you know, bad tone. And it's, it's really hard to uh, disambiguate those things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it, I think one issue that, 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 that's, you know, one theme uh, uh, that, that's occurred in this, you know, tone debate is um, this notion that um, criticism is really, really important. We need criticism. I mean, criticism is the lifeblood of science. I mean, peer review essentially is, is curated, you know, criticism. And we, we need that so that we produce the best possible science we can. And if, if we get rid of criticism, we're, we're, we're going to stop being a science pretty soon. Um, so we need that. And uh, I think for a long time, we just weren't used to the open criticism. And as a result, we kind of took it personally and started thinking that, you know, hey, that's, you know, that's off balance. You can't, you can't say that. You can't do that. That's, you're being a jerk. Um, and not to say that there, there aren't there aren't jerks and that people have not been jerks from time to time. Um, I mean, I've I've been a jerk from time to time online. I've made mistakes, um, uh, but I think that takes away you know the, the broader issue is that criticism is, is important and we need it and uh, it's it shouldn't go away. Yeah. So for a field that's so dedicated to the idea that subjective construal determines reality that perspective is everything, we seem very confident about the idea that we can draw a box around certain things and be like, this is objectively over the line bullying and harassment versus this is legitimate criticism. So what is bullying then? So what would constitute, like, where do we draw the line between criticism, legitimate criticism, and harassment, um, you know, incivility or bullying? Yeah, I don't, because... I've never personally experienced anything that I would describe as that, but um, maybe you have. So do you want to share those experiences? Yeah, yeah, I, I would. I, and I feel uh, feel a bit even uh, reluctant to share a little bit because they're personal stories. But um, I think it gives a flavor for what someone might be going through when um, either they are legitimately bullied or they feel like they've been bullied. So this was... Um, I was at a, at a meeting in Germany a number of years ago, and a senior, prominent uh, person in the field who maybe is more on the, the side of the status quo. Um, I probably should name names. I've debated whether I should name a name here, but I, I, I maybe one, one, one more beer. Maybe I'll name the name later. <laughs> I'll come back out the break. <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to avoid that name the name right now. Um, you know, I flew into Germany that day. Um, and uh, had a few beers, um, and they had a kind of welcome barbecue, and kind of out of nowhere, this person who I've you know known for a few years comes up to me and says, uh, "Hey, Mickey, are you are you stupid? Or are you a bad scientist?" Like that was the way he said hello to me. I mean, it was like it wasn't, "Hey, how you doing? You know, how was your flight? You know, uh, isn't it wonderful to be here?" It's like, "Hey, Mickey, are you stupid? Or are you a bad scientist?" I'm like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Um, and he's, he repeated it. Like, are you dumb? Are you stupid? Are you a bad scientist? And I, I'm like, I still don't know what you're talking about, but I think what you're trying to say is you don't appreciate the, um, the line that I've taken about this one line of research. So this is this research on ego depletion, where I was, um, I mean, for many years, a proponent and, uh, I mean, a critic in, in some dimensions, um, but a proponent in other dimensions. And, uh, I think he just didn't like the, the 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 critical stance I had taken, kind of being outspoken about um, my lack of faith in the effect anymore. 
And I mean, I guess that's what he meant because he didn't explain. And then he, he asked a third time, are you stupid or are you bad scientist? I'm like, does it have to be those two? Can it be something else? And he perseverated. I'm like, okay, you know what? Um, I think I was a bad scientist. Um, but I've made mistakes, you know, anyway, so you just kept it. And like, you know, as this was happening, and by the way, this is happening. And there was a, a, a grad student who was there witnessing this. And he's clearly realizing, whoa, there's like drama going on. Um, and as this is happening, uh, my heart is beating faster. I'm like, I, I don't want to say I'm having a panic attack, but it was like, it was very, very, it was scary and frightening someone, um, who I respected. And I still do, um, uh, kind of attacking me this way. Um, now, to this person's benefit, uh, 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 he apologized immediately the next morning. He had quite a few drinks, um, and as did I. Um, I mean, not that that excuses his behavior, but it, it, it felt bad. And it kind of colored my experience uh, of the entire conference, to be honest. Um, so that was, you know, me being, I would say, harassed or I don't, I don't, I don't want to say bullied, but harassed, uh, you know, by someone who is, let's say, maybe pro status quo, if you will. I wonder about, you know, defining bullying so broadly. Uh, I feel like bullying, I, I worry about this sort of like scope creep of these terms where now bullying becomes like you said something to me that I, that hurt my feelings that I didn't like that offended me somehow. Right. So like, I thought that the definition of bullying was, first of all, that there's a power imbalance, right? right. So I can't bully the chair of my department, for right. example. And that it's kind of this sustained pattern of behavior, right? So it's not like once I write a blog post saying Mickey Inslecht is a bad researcher, is that, you know, I'm continually kind of harassing you. Is that like, is that too narrow, do you think? But I looked. I actually looked up bullying, uh, the definition of bullying before uh, before we started. So I have two definitions here. Um, one is uh, use of superior strength or influence to intimidate someone, um, typically to force him or her to do what one wants. Um, so there is, you know, a key in that is superior strength. So that speaks to the power imbalance that you referred to, um, and then to intimidate um, to, to get this person to do what you want. Um, another definition, this is uh, from Oxford this time, um, seeking to harm or intimidate or coerce um, someone perceived as vulnerable. Um, so that one is doesn't imply power difference. Uh, all you need there is some vulnerability. And I mean, I guess typically uh, powerless people who've got less power are more vulnerable than those who have more power. Yeah. 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 So this the question of the power dynamic or or what constitutes vulnerability I think is interesting because like on the one hand you can say like look a lot of these critics are uh pretty junior people so you're talking about like postdocs assistant professors even grad students at often less well-known universities and often their targets are established you know successful at like the very top of the like brand name universities but at the same time it feels like because these folks have an uh, the the uh, critics now uh, have an audience um, on the internet, and because they have statistical expertise, it's like they sort of have the upper hand. You know, I think Simone Schnall said something like, uh, "You know, it's being it's like being tried in a court where you don't have any any ability to defend yourself." Right. So it feels like you know you're being criticized by these people where you don't really like understand like the full dynamics of how this works, but you know they have a big audience and they're saying these bad things about you and you're sort of backed into a corner by this. Now, like, I'm not sure that's legitimate, right? Like the statistical expertise, certainly if somebody's a statistical expert and they're like, you did this wrong, then I don't think it's fair. It's not fair for me to say, even though I might feel that way, well, you're picking on me because, you know, you know more about statistics. Listen like, to them. <laughs> exactly. They might have something important <laughs> to say. And, right. You know, uh, maybe be a little, best, little bit less confident in, in what you think. Uh, and yeah, listen. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously like inbounds. Um, but I do understand where the, the feeling comes from. Um, look, uh, I would love to keep talking about this, but my beer is... <laughs> that's right. Well, let's take a pause and uh, continue... Uh, after a short break. And we'll be right back. I'm gonna put on an iron shirt and chase the devil out of bird. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. I'm gonna send him to outer space. 
Hi there, this is Yoel speaking. I just wanted to let you guys know real quick how to get in touch with us. So the easiest way is on Twitter, where you can find us at, at fourbeerspod. So mention us, DM us, our DMs are open, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can also email us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. And now, back to our show. So Mickey, what do you think of your beer? Uh, so now we are drinking uh, Great Lakes Brewery. Actually, I, I'm really a fan of, of, of this brewery. Um, this is called the Octopus Wants to Fight IPA. Um, this one is really nice, uh, quite hoppy. Uh, I'm a fan of IPAs. Um, I'll admit that last one uh, was a bit uh, flat for me. Then it wasn't as flavorful, and this one's this one's quite nice. So uh, I'm into it. I'm also noticing it's 6.2% alcohol by volume, and we've got like a pint here. Uh, not like a pint, a pint here. So I suspect I'll be even less uh, articulate than normal on the second half. You are going to be naming names, by the way. <laughs> let's let's pick it back up, and uh, I want to I want to state to you a sort of a provocative argument, but I do think this is one that people have made, um, and this is sort of playing off the fact that uh, the latest kind of salvo in these tone wars is a paper that came out in in PNAS. Uh, called Issues with Data Analyses, Errors, Underlying Themes, and Potential Solutions by uh, Brown and colleagues. And that took a, a pretty hard line um, against uh, especially what are called ad hominem attacks, and I think we should get into later whether you can really define those in a, in a useful way. Um, but what struck me is like, look, a paper in PNAS, one of the you know top three journals for us, and it, it just, it's striking that it, it seems to me like you often have these people who have access to, uh, to power, you know, to power in our field, um, making these arguments that could be described as trying to shut up people less powerful than themselves. Uh, so another example I'm thinking of is, uh, is Susan Fisk, um, also an editor at PNAS. She wrote a piece for the APS Observer that caused a lot of controversy uh, a little while ago that, again, was was decrying online incivility. Like, I'm a huge fan of her work um, and and really of her personally, but I, I thought this piece was bad and it, it got under my skin in part because, again, it looks like here's a person who's like at the very apex of our power structure telling people much less powerful than her to shut up. So the cynical take here um, is that these arguments, they are deployed by powerful people who have an, a vested interest in the boat not being rocked too much to implicitly or explicitly threaten boat rockers who are much lower than they are on the power hierarchy. Um, and uh, I saw today uh, Sanjay Srivastava, who I think we both follow on Twitter, posted a tweet saying, Something more or less like this. And I don't want to put words into his mouth, but the, that was sort of my reading of the gist of it. And Sanjay, if you think that's unfair, uh, email Mickey. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that is an argument that's worth taking seriously. Is this just something that you know is being employed strategically by people in positions of power who don't like now that random postdoc from Moldova is in a position to question uh, somebody who's an editor at PNAS? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I think I think there's a kernel of truth there, or, or maybe more than a kernel of truth. I think there is some power dynamic here, and um, I think you know the people who, yeah, the gatekeepers of our field have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. They have a vested interest in in the status quo, right? I mean, we've erected metaphorical statues for some of these people. Um, and if we admit uh, that, you know, psychology, for example, is full of false positives, we have to, you know, take down those, those, those statues. Uh, and that makes sense that they'd be fighting those, you know, uh, you know the, the, those statues coming down. Um, so I, I definitely agree that it is uh, something that can be used to distract from the real argument. I believe, and I'm not a you know uh, an expert in in anything to do in the United States, but I believe in um, in the civil rights era weren't uh, weren't there many people saying you know why don't these you know these black activists why don't they just kind of speak 
you know, civilly? And why, why does it have to be so rude and, and, and kind of, you know, lead to all this disruption? Uh, and, the, you know, that's, you know, uh, you know, they're, you know, the powerful people are trying to, you know, shut out the, the less powerful people. So there might be some dynamic there. Now, was I completely mistaken with my history there, uh, UL? No, you're absolutely correct. So Martin Luther King, who's, you know, now as close to a secular saint as we have in the U.S., like in his time, like in the 60s, a majority of Americans actually like disapproved of uh, what he and his movement were doing. So I agree with with, with, with the premise so far. But I, it's not only the powerful people who are saying there is a tone problem. It's not only the people who are kind of, uh, you know, full professors, you know, editors at PNAS. I think you see assistant professors saying this. I think I, I you know, I can't, I can't off off the top of my head, can't think of any names. But I think I even I've even seen online graduate students saying there's like, they're afraid. They're, um, yeah, that there is you know incivility and and and. Uh, you know, it makes them afraid and uh, uh, things to publish, and and perhaps they don't want to be involved in such a, a hostile, incivil place. Um, now, that is not necessarily a bad thing um, to be afraid of being criticized, um, but uh, I don't think it's only the powerful. Right. So I think that's a good point. Um, I you know know somebody personally who was criticized on a a blog. There was a feeling of it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? So somebody writes a criticism of your work. And this is getting a little beyond tone um, because it, it doesn't necessarily even have to be uncivil. But like, if you feel like that criticism is wrong, then your choices are to like mix it up with that person in an environment you t- don't totally understand or just to suck it up and move on and leave that out there and then worry about are people reading it? Are they going to get the wrong idea about who I am and my work and so on? And that does feel kind of unfair. It feels like you're kind of forcing people to into this engagement that they'd maybe rather not have. But at the same time, like, is that what you sign up for when you when you publish research that people are going to criticize you, maybe even in a way that's unfair or off base? Yeah. I mean, I guess you sign up for... Uh, well, I think you do sign up for criticism, right? I mean, that's, this is like, 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 like we said earlier, I mean, this is the lifeblood. This is, this is in some ways how science is defined by, um, by, by vetting and scrutiny and, and uh, skepticism. So you sign up for that. Um, but I also agree that there's really only one response to a critic, and that is, you're right. And by say one response, I mean like that's that's the only way you can like get out of that situation. Um, if you fight back, if you push back, uh, you you might be labeled uh, someone who well, someone stupid, someone who's not you know methodologically uninformed, um, and uh, yeah, it, it's a hard place, and, and it's not only happening to the Susan Fisks of the world, right? This is it is happening. Uh, you know, the example I, I think I know the example you're referring to um, is you know it's a junior person, someone who's just started, on um, you know not tenured. Um, so it's not only yeah, it's not only the the the, 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 the prestigious the gatekeepers who are who are claiming uh, there are problems with with tone and incivility and, and ad hominem attacks, etc. Right. So if you're in that position, you're like, well, you know, you don't want to be the next emotional. So maybe you just suck it up. Maybe you just don't respond and you leave it alone and you feel bad that uh, this thing is out there about you and your work. And maybe you worry about it and it bothers you and you don't really have a lot of recourse. Now, that seems like it sucks. I mean, the question is, okay, any system that you can think of is going to have some outcomes that are occasionally unfair for individuals. Right. And like, I'm perfectly comfortable saying like that is unfair to that specific person. But is that the right way to evaluate it? Like specific stories of unfairness to specific people? Or should we be looking at like net? Is this the best system that we can think of? Under all sorts of systems you might think of, there's there's outcomes that could be unfair, right? So let's say we decide you're not allowed to criticize people's research on the internet. It has to go through peer review. And then maybe some people can't get their valid critiques published because reviewers and editors, you know, 
block things and right. don't let valid critiques through. Maybe some people don't get jobs that go to undeserving people who do bad research, right? Certainly those are unfair outcomes too. And you can, in that world, point to, look what happened to those people. Isn't that unfair what happened to them, right? So there's you're always going to be treating some people unfairly is my point. And I guess I question whether like focusing on individual instances of unfairness, like kind of this argument by anecdote is the right way to, to even go about answering this question of what kind of system do we want? Or should we be saying overall, which system do we think will lead to the best outcomes broadly, like on average, right? Like what's going to balance moving science forward with um, being treating researchers even-handedly, and I do think that one thing that comes into this as well is like a lot of this research is publicly funded, right? And as a taxpayer, like taking myself out of the, you know, kind of partiality of these are my like friends and colleagues and stuff. Like, I'm like, dude, you know, if I'm paying for your research, then you should be willing to be criticized about it. I don't give a shit about your feelings. This is my <laughs> money. <laughs> yeah. I, the idea that criticism should should only be curated, I think is crazy. Like we're we're gonna leave people who kind of got us into this mess to you know be in charge of vetting what is an appropriate or inappropriate criticism. No, thank you. I, I... Yeah, I mean, you can argue like about whether it's a good idea um, to say that we should only allow criticism in in peer reviewed outlets, which which I don't think it is. But then also, you know that that horse is well out of the barn, right? Like, you're, you're not going to stop people from doing this on the internet. Yeah, no, but something, you, you can't stop them, right? Um, so, yeah, whether we like it or not, it's here. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, you, know, un, you know, things are not going to, you know, be curated. I mean, that's, that's just ludicrous. I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's done. Um, so you might say, well, you know, living with this new reality of we are going to be talking about research on the internet and we're going to live with that, you might say maybe you should face some sort of professional consequences if you cross some lines. So this PNAS piece that I mentioned, um, I'm just going to read you a paragraph from it here. Scientists are often protected by academic freedom, and in the United States, individuals are afforded First Amendment rights for free speech. However, Freedoms are not immune to legal or social recourse, as in the case where a biotech chief executive officer was convicted of wire fraud for misleading press release about a product. Individuals engaging in ad hominem attacks in scientific discourse should be subject to censure. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting argument. Um, it's also what a weird comparison. But anyways, th th this notion of censuring someone, um, no, I don't know. Well, it's not clear what that what that means, even like censuring. Like, you should get in trouble with your university. Your professional organization sends you a nasty letter. We all agree not to hire you. I I don't know. I don't know how to interpret that. I think there is censuring going on already. Okay, and that is that people people have eyes. They have they have you know they have a sense of like what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, and if someone repeatedly is an asshole online, people figure that out really quickly. And guess what? They're unlikely to get a job. Or if they have a job, they're less likely to be respected um, or less likely to be listened to. So I, I do think it happens. So people just decide you're a crank and start to ignore you. Essentially, you become less influential as a critic. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there, are, there are, I think there are critics out there that have more respect and, and, and critics out there that have less respect. Uh, and I think if you, you know, consistently uh, act in a disrespectful manner, um, people will start ignoring you. You'll just be, even if you have gold, even if what you say is beautiful and amazing and you're advancing knowledge, people won't take you seriously. People will just start tuning you out. So this is almost like a version of the like science self-corrects argument of like, if people really are acting like jerks, then they're going to lose influence and nobody's going to listen to them. So, you know, ultimately they're just hurting themselves. And the idea that we need to like vigorously police how people are acting on the internet seems superfluous. Yeah, it's unneeded. 
Um, I mean, people just like in, in IRL, IRL in, in real life, uh, people, you know, their actions, people observe their actions and the reputations are built. Um, and, you know, we act nicely with, that, with other people. I mean, number one, just to be nice and it's a good thing to do, but we also do it because we don't want other people to think, you know, badly of us. Um, and if you're consistently a jerk in real life, online, yeah, you know, this shit just happens by, you know, as a consequence. So to you, what is over the line? I mean, I think anytime you start attacking the the person, their character, uh, and not what they're saying, um, you are, yeah, you're, 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 I'm not sure if you're over the line all the time, but you're at least getting there. So if I say intellect research is nothing more than junk science, that is not ad hominem. Like I haven't talked about you. But that is literally one of the examples that's given in an article that ran in the Boston Globe, an op-ed um, for better science, call off the revolutionaries, uh, where this was, uh, you know, one of the words and quotes that was used by the author uh, Pardo Sabetti to illustrate um, this like online culture of incivility. That's tough. I think there, if, there is something that is junk science about a paper. I mean, point to that thing. I mean, junk science is like, I, I don't know what that means. Uh, I, I mean, it just means you, you, you think it's shit. Right. Um, although, although, sorry, just to interject. Like, these are quotes that she's pulled out of these pieces, right? So it might be like, um, this work is junk science. I'm going to illustrate to you why, right? We don't know that that, like, that wasn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, I think tech, I'm not sure technically if that would be an ad hominem or not. It's certainly insulting. Okay. It's insulting. Um, and uh, I suspect it would be more persuasive if that line was left out. Right. But if they say, you know, this is junk science and this is why it's junk science, um, like go into the reasons why it's junk science and tell me, you know, whether you agree or disagree or why it's wrong or why it's right. Um, so attack the argument is what I would say. Criticize the argument. Now, being called someone who conducts junk science doesn't feel good. Um, and again, you know, I think invoke, you know, just using that uh, is not going to help your, your case if you're a critic. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if it's over the line. What do you think? Do you think that's over the line? I think it depends. Some <laughs> some stuff actually is junk science. Yeah. <laughs> just being honest. Right. Right. Like, I mean, if it's a consistent pattern... Like some of this stuff of wanting, man. Like I think that's a fair description. It's just like there's nothing salvageable there. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I'm not sure what other word to use yeah. uh, for that that quality of work. Right. So already, like we have sort of a problem of like defining what's objectionable because like even this stuff, which you can come up with cases where it's not at all ad hominem, still some people would say, well, that's over the line. That's too harsh. And there, obviously, um, your perception of what's too harsh is going to be affected by your belief about the facts, and those right. are going to differ between people. Now, some people might say, well, okay, I'm willing to allow criticism of the work, even if that criticism is quite strong. But if once you start criticizing the person, that's not okay, right? So ad hominem attacks are, as this PNAS piece said, um, they're bad enough that they should be "quote unquote" censured. So, is that a standard that we can work with? Uh, whether it's an ad hominem or not, yeah, um, I, I think uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there are ad hominems that are fallacious, right? So there are ad hominems that are like it's not an argument. There, you're actually there's no argument whatsoever, and there's some ad, ad hominems that are kind of added to an actual criticism. So it would be good if the critic didn't add the ad hominem. I think it actually detracts from the argument. Um, but ad hominem, you know, in and of itself is not necessarily a fallacy. So this kind of uh, brings up this, actually I read this blog post in response about what, you know, what is an ad hominem. And the title of this uh, blog post is, first of all, it's written by someone named Fallacy Man. I don't know who this person is. Um, and the title of this blog post is, Stop Accusing Me of Ad Hominem Fallacies, You Stupid Idiot. Uh, or, You Stupid Idiots. Um, and he describes uh, there being really... Uh, so an ad hominem is essentially attacking the person, not the argument. Um, and he described there being three varieties of ad hominems, but only one of them is fallacious. Now, I don't know if I fully agree. 
but let, let's let's go over the arguments. Um, so one is just you know simply name calling, right? Calling someone an idiot. So you know the title of this blog post was you know had idiot in in, in the title to make the point of like that's not actually an ad hominem. I'm just called you a name. Now calling a name, calling someone a name, is bad taste, bad form, and again probably undermines your argument. Um, but if you call someone an idiot and then say why you think they're an idiot. Um, you know, the argument could still be completely reasonable, rational, uh, logical. So that's not, there's no fallacy there. Um, the second one that he brings up, which is a fallacy, is when you're using, when you're attacking a person to undermine their argument. So a person says, you know, X, and you say, you're an idiot, and that's it. Um, so that is not, there's no, there's actually no rebuttal there. There's no actually arguing with the point, and that, uh, so there's nothing there. Uh, that's a fallacy and that's not going to win you any points uh, um, by any logicians. Um, and the third one, and this is the one where I'm, I, I'm, I find it a bit trickier. And this is where you attack the person um, to undermine their credibility um, and therefore to, you know, say, to cast doubt on whether they can make the argument or not. Okay, so the, the example he uses, and this is a very clear example, is when a witness and I, you know, uh, a witness says, you know, he, you know, he or she saw uh, someone do do X, and then the defense attorney is like, well, uh, we can't trust this uh, this witness because they're they've been shown to be a pathological liar, right? So now because you know this person's a liar, therefore they're um, they're generally untrustworthy, and we're not sure if we can trust their opinion in this case. Now. He would say that's not a fallacy because it's true. You can't necessarily, you know, arbitrate whether you can judge, you know, this person. Uh, you can trust this person or not. But it's 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 a bit slippery there because, um, you know, undermining someone's credibility doesn't mean you've undermined their specific argument. Someone could, in general, be untrustworthy or, or in general be incompetent, yet make a perfectly competent and reasonable argument, right? Um, so. Anyways, he, fallacy man says that's not necessarily a fallacy. You can say generally they are uh, they're they're you know untrustworthy, but I would say, you know, yes, someone could be incompetent generally, but then it should be very trivial to then undermine their argument to argue. So still, I think it makes sense to argue, you know, uh, point by point why they're wrong as opposed to uh, just kind of undermining their credibility more generally. So that would be, you know, kind of what ad hominems, what, you know, what is fallacious, what is not. Um, what do you think about that? What do you think about that, you know, especially that last one, that's, you know, that slippery one? Yeah, I think often people are making arguments that are in part, trust me. Like if, if you question my one paper on this and I'm like, yeah, but I have five other papers that share that too. And you say, you messed this one up so egregiously. Why should we trust you about the other five? Like this calls into question your ability to do research competently. I, I think that follows the form that you outlined. Um, I don't think that's invalid. Um, and I, I don't think that we do ourselves favors by pretending that you can always cleanly separate what we say about the work versus what that says about the person. I think it, sometimes it definitely does say something about the person that they keep making like egregious sloppy errors, right? And so I would rather I would rather have the standard be about does it seem relevant to bring this in? Like does this seem gratuitous? Um is it just an insult for the sake of being insulting? And that can e equally be about the person and the work. I mean, we're so identified with our work anyway that if mm -hmm. I say like, this work was appallingly sloppy, sloppily done, I feel like it's undergrad level research. You know, your your feelings are going to be hurt by that, even though I've technically haven't said anything about you as a researcher, right? Right. Um, and. I think it would be fair to say, like, look, you don't have to say that. You can just say, like, what, what's your problem with the with the research? So say we come up with some sort of consensus standard for how you should act. And it, we have been talking in that way a little bit. Like, yeah, people should do this. They should avoid that. How do you how do you enforce that? How do you um, make other people follow your rules? Or or is that not the point? Is Is the point just to come up with rules for... This is what I what I'm going to try and do for myself. This is maybe how, how I'm going to evaluate other people. So if other people don't follow these rules, I'm going to like say oh, that person seems like a bit of a crank, 
and, you know, pay attention to them less? Like, is there some aspect of this where we actually can say, like, here's what you, stranger acquaintance, should be doing? Yeah, we can't. I, 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 I don't. I do not think we can enforce these rules. And, and if we create an environment where we limit, let's say, ad hominems, I think that environment suffers to some extent. So I'll give you an example. Um, so probably the worst year of my life as an academic was being a moderator of this Facebook group uh, called PsychMap. Um, uh, and I think, you know, I was so gung-ho with this idea uh, because I did, and I, I, I don't know if I still do, but I, but I certainly did think there were, there were you know, tone issues. And uh, in... And this group, PsychMap, was like, hey, we're going to discuss psychology and methods and practices and, you know, criticism, all of it. But we have one simple rule, and that rule is you, we're not talking about people, we're talking about actual work. Um, and we're not going to, we're really going to, actually, we are open about tone policing. We, you know, we actually tone policed. Um, and, uh, I mean, that was, the reason I say it was such a hard year, difficult year, was because, Everyone hated me. I mean, no one enjoyed being, you know, monitored and moderated and said, hey, cool down, you know, you know shut the fuck up or whatever it is. Um, and I think we just pissed off people on both sides of, of this kind of the, this debate or the civil war that's going on in social psychology. Um, and I think that, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the space is still active. It's still very used. I still check it, you know, very regularly. Um, but I do not think it's as vibrant, uh, as productive as other groups out there that are not moderated, you know, you know, tone police to the same extent. Um, I think I think it's in the end, I think it's lower quality posts that are you know coming out of there than in other places. Versus what's your comparison? Yeah, so this would be the uh, psych mad, I guess it would be the uh, uh, methods and discussion. I forget what it stands for. Mad stands for. Um, such as the place where, you know, it's kind of like here, you know, being drunk and, uh, you know, speaking critically about, uh, about psychology, uh, unfiltered. And, uh, you know, uh, criticism of people in any form is, is pretty much acceptable. I don't, I don't think I've seen anyone censured for really anything. I, I'm not, I don't really go there very often, so I don't know, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'm barely on Facebook anymore, so I don't really follow the groups. I follow Twitter where, again, I mean, there's no moderator saying, knock it off. You know, you can't say this about so-and-so. And I found that, you know, I, it's, there's a ton of difference between the two formats, obviously. But I, I always found that to be more kind of interesting and informative and, and free-flowing than, than the Facebook group. Is it fair to say, like, look, we ran this experiment, like, in basically the most the best way you can think of, given that it's real life, we had two groups, mm -hmm. one heavily moderated, one not really. And we looked to see which ended up with the most interesting discussions. And, you know, the results are in. And it turns out that no moderation is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seemed that way. And also the number of actual members of the groups. I mean, they were essentially about the same number for why. Well, actually, I think PsychMap was actually even a bit higher for a little bit. Um, and then PsychMad, I guess, uh, is like double, I think, now. Although it's possible that most of those are Russian bots. <laughs> <laughs> 90% <laughs> Yes, it is possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, what have we concluded? God, no, man. I'm not even sure what we've talked about here today. <laughs> <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, okay. I mean, uh, some 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 closing thoughts about you know um, being uh, criticized feels shit. Um, it doesn't feel good. Um, being criticized uh, and with ad hominem. So bad hominem meaning uh, you know criticized as a person um, might feel especially shit. Um, but it doesn't mean that the criticism is not warranted. It doesn't mean that we should stop criticizing. I mean, that's I don't think one thing I take away from this. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I take away from it is uh, you're not going to stop people talking about research on the Internet. So we might as well drop that because it's, it's not going to happen. It's a non-starter. 
And then I don't think we're really going to be able to sanction people in any meaningful way for being jerks. Well, other than what we're already doing. Oh, yeah. Like socially yeah, sanctioned. Exactly. Yeah. In the same way that you would in real life if somebody acted like a jerk, not invite them to your parties. And that's fine. Um, so, and finally, I think that there are like kind of models to learn from of how to engage in a civil and respectful way and that we can at least, you know, model that ourselves and try and promote that to people we supervise, grad students, you know, postdocs, whatever. Um, but I think there are, there are a few models out there. So. You know, I would say Sanjay as well. Yeah, Sanjay Srinivasava, yeah. definitely. You know, yeah. he doesn't hold back yeah. at all. But like, you know, uh, unfailingly polite and kind. Mm-hmm. Kind. Um, actually, you know, the whole, you know, Black Goat, uh, you know, team. The whole crew. Uh, yeah, the whole crew. So, it's, you know, Samin, who, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I admire her greatly. She strikes that, that balance, being critical, fair, um, and also kind, also kind of, uh, it can, can perspective take, understand that it feels bad. Um, but also realizes that like, fuck, I mean, sometimes you have to feel bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only way you're going to, you're going to make, you know, make progress, move forward. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end it. All right. Well, uh, beers are done. They are. So, uh, well, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.